From the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, this is the Forgotten Coast Podcast. An insider's look at ground zero of climate change, a chance to preserve the voices of disappearing communities, and a conversation with those working to ensure their survival. I'm your host, Kate Lyon O'Neill, and today we're in Corpus Christi, Texas. Corpus Christi is a bay town on the South Texas Gulf Coast. For how large of a town it is, over 300,000 people, it's honestly pretty remote. If you're thinking about the Texas Gulf Coast, you've got the tip of Texas by the Mexican border, right? Then it has a huge curved swing around the Gulf. Then there's Galveston and Houston. And then it's not too much farther into the Louisiana border. Corpus Christi is in about the middle of the tip and Houston. But since it's Texas, it's not really close. It's about 200 miles away from Houston and about 150 from San Antonio. The biggest industry in Corpus is oil and gas and the port from which those products are exported. It's also surprisingly a hotbed for civil rights. In February of 1929, the League of United Latin American Citizens, also known as LULAC, was founded there. In 1970, Cisneros v. Corpus Christi Independent School District was the first case to extend the desegregation order in Brown v. Board to Hispanic students. And in 1995, Selena was murdered there, at the hotel next to where I stayed. I knew I had to look into Corpus after hearing about the coalition of activists who were fighting against the real political power in Texas— the oil, gas, and petrochemical industries. You'll hear from four people throughout this episode who are working in that space. Let's meet them. I have a degree in urban studies and urban planning, so therefore I know how to research, and I know how cities are made and what what we're doing, what governmental impact have on X, Y, and Z, where the money's coming from, who's on first and what's on second and not on third. It's terrible when you give a black man uh, uh, knowledge, all right? It, it is terrible. <laughs> oh, we, because, uh, but they don't want to hear, all right? This is Lamont Taylor. He grew up in the Hillcrest neighborhood of Corpus Christi and later fought the city and state when they tried to put an enormous bridge project right through the Hillcrest neighborhood. At the time we spoke, Lamont had stage four cancer, but was vibrant and enthusiastic to talk about his work. So, so, I'm going to tell you straight and plain how it is. And there's nowhere in the world you're going to intimidate me. Mm-hmm. Hey, I had stage four cancer. I had 3% chance of living. Screw you. Excuse my language. Right. <laughs> what can you do to me? Yeah. <laughs> but that's rare. I think most people can be intimidated. Majority of people can. One politician told me this a long time ago after he retired. He told me, Lamont, the best way you can get to him is shame him. <laughs> mm-hmm. The best way you can get to him is shame him. All right? Show him that the king has no clothes on. Yeah. Shame him. And so that's, that's my good trouble that I'm getting into 
I'm shaming them. That's my good trouble. I'm shaming them. All right? Uh, I say, I'm a living witness. I can show you my battle scars. I got a story to tell you. I, I, uh, this is my purpose-driven life. <laughs> All right? <laughs> this is my purpose-driven life. Mm -hmm. to tell you, but by the grace of God. And now I'm going to tell, shame the world and tell y'all that it's profit over people and God is for people and not for this profit stuff. This is the number one thing I would say about the Formosa litigation, Diane Wilson versus Formosa case. It is remarkable because it's a successful result of private advocacy and just her diligence. Dave Bright is a plaintiff's attorney born and raised in Corpus Christi. He got involved in the case we'll discuss in the second part of this episode, where Diane Wilson a determined woman from a shrimping family stood up against an enormous plastic plant polluting the waters around her native Port Lavaca and won an incredible victory. It's, it's Diane Wilson's diligence day in and day out for literally years mm -hmm. daily that had a happy ending because it led to a very successful lawsuit. And I, as, where that's concerned, I and the other lawyers are very much latecomers to that. I mean, her thing is, th this is my home. And by home, I mean the earth. That's where I live. And I'm going to protect it. And I'll be damned if anybody's going to tell me I can't do that. So she's impervious to efforts, as people should be. She's impervious to efforts to intimidate her. It doesn't compute. <laughs> Come here in 2006. This is the 2008. We started all this. They said, "Here's the deal: um, um, if you step out of line, whether it's environmentally or some other way, uh, you cross the powers that be in Corpus Christi. They're going to contact your employer and apply pressure to your employers." Jim Klein is a professor of history at Del Mar College and a critical member of CAPE, a Corpus Christi environmental organizing group. He has assisted with projects like the fight against the Harbor Bridge and was key in stopping a dirty coking plant from coming into Corpus. He also recently ran for city council. They get this person back in line, threaten their job. And if you don't have a job, if you're a retiree, then they're going to threaten your, your kid's job. And, and as I said, that's from what I understand is a fairly typical response in the area here. And that's, I think, also a people from kind of stepping out and standing up speaking out because they know that, that they, they're potentially threatening their livelihood in, in doing so. We would go to speak at public, make public comment at a commissioner, a county commissioner's meeting or a city council meeting, and there would be about four or five of us, maybe maybe ten of us, uh, would make public comment against Las Brisas or something else, um, and, and then would go and sit back down again. And we'd see people in the audience uh, giving us the low thumb, like thumbs up, but like down here, so no one can see it. Most of the time, you see, 
private attorneys can't get involved in, in matters like this because, you know, there's no money in it. There's no money in a Title VI civil rights complaint, right? You're not entitled to attorney's fees, you know? And so you have to rely on legal aid programs. Errol Summerlin was my connection to meeting all of those incredible three people. He's a retired attorney with Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid and is an amazing ally to the Hillcrest community. He took me on a tour of Hillcrest while I was visiting. If the audio sounds a bit funky, it's because we're on the handheld recorder while we drive around. And so it wasn't until 15 years ago when legal aid programs actually started considering environmental justice components. But even then, you might have 50 lawyers devoted to domestic violence. You'll have 20 to consumer, 20 to, you know, housing uh, all over the state. And you've got a handful, you know, that are in, in the environmental justice area. And so it's automatically a lower resource. And secondly, then they have to decide which ones because there's so much going on. So the port of Corpus Christi, is, as I said, has gone all in on oil and gas, yeah. especially you know, when the uh, federal government reinitiated oil exports, mm-hmm. what is it, in 2015? Mm-hmm. Um, that was a game changer. I think we are, I think we might be the number two port in size now in the country, something like that. It's, just, it's astonishing. Um, but they've gone all in on oil and gas, and I think they have blinders on that they can't see beyond that. And it wasn't always oil and gas. When the port first opened in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s still yet, they shipped a lot more cotton out of here than they did oil. And so it has not always been oil and gas. They can do something else because they have done something else. It's just been quite a while since they, they've had to do that. Lamont grew up in Hillcrest and moved back after completing his master's program. Hillcrest is located in the northeast corner of town, with the Industrial Canal to the north and the bay to the east. It was designated as a new black community due to overcrowding in the original black Washington Coles neighborhood, as well as refineries eyeing the Industrial Canal as a good place to set up massive plastic and oil facilities. And I pride myself, I know more about history in Corpus Christi than Corpus Christi does. You know, and I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> and I'm from Mississippi. So, uh, so um, I've uh, had an opportunity to, to see it from both sides. And it's still wrong, <laughs> regardless of whichever side you see it from, as far as from Hispanic point of perspective, African American perspective, and then from poor economic the oppressed people mm-hmm. because they went to school with me as well over at Miller High School mm-hmm. so they were from this area where refineries had come in and taken over they started taking over in Corpus Christi I would say about um, oh during the same time that they had restricted covenants over in Hillcrest all right mm-hmm. they had restricted covenants over in Hillcrest so we could only stay no next to Lexington. So the projects were, were here, and uh, one of the uh, port street was here, okay. uh, but the port, the projects, all right? So this is where census track four, if you will, is where uh, African Americans lived, elaborate time Negroes lived, and uh, then a little few across uh, port, they let uh, just a select few sprinkling of pepper inside of 
uh, the neighborhood and it was limited up to the park. And so the rest was Hispanics lived out here, out in Hillcrest and also Anglos, mm -hmm. uh, Anglos, white people. Okay, here, um, right around where we are, used to be um, the old country club. So oh, really? yes, the old country club. Out here with all these refineries, uh, this is yeah, where the that country be, club was. Before refineries, <laughs> before uh, refineries, uh, all right. <laughs> refineries started coming. They knew it and they dispersed. So they let us come in because mm -hmm. they knew that the refineries are coming. All right. Mm -hmm. So and then the refineries became more popular than we did. All right. So the refineries came. They let us in. I got on the road with Errol to drive around the Washington Coles neighborhood. We're just outside of the downtown area. It's a great location. Looking at a squat red brick building that was a wastewater plant. This new wastewater treatment plant moved in and a lot of folks were displaced. And it just became overly crowded. And so there was a planning and zoning commission meeting and they were meeting about what to do with the Negro problem. And they wrote a, a letter to the city council reporting that, um, that they had to do something with the, the Negro problem because if they didn't do it, then they were going to get fed up and start moving throughout the city. Mm -hmm. And we don't want them to be doing that. So this problem had to be addressed and the city had to decide what to do with the black folk. So the city council decided that what they would do is they would approach the folks in Hillcrest. Hillcrest was a white affluent community, had a country club. Mm -hmm. So they went over to them and met with them with the neighborhood and told them about the situation, said they really needed some help, and they really didn't want the black folk to move any, they wanted them to stay over on this side of town. So they convinced the affluent folks in Hillcrest to move. They even offered to help them buy their homes and to relocate them. And so that's what happened. As soon as they began to, to leave, they opened up the property to be sold to black folk. And one of the things that the mayor did when he went to the neighborhood, you know, the affluent neighborhood over here, was he told them not only have we got this problem with, you know, the Negroes, but industry's coming. You guys got to get out now. Where we're going right now is we're going by the Holy Cross Catholic Church. This is where the very first school for black kids was uh, built. And it was built by uh, St. Catherine Drexel. And she was the second American-born saint in America. And a lot of folks, when they think of saints, they don't think about, they think of, saints over in Europe or St. Catherine walked these streets all through here. Um, and so uh, the, the neighborhood began moving, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, more and more people moved out of the Washington Coles to get away from the overcrowding. A lot of businesses, this
was the hopping spot, okay? This is where um, the ebony was. It was where B.B. King and Ella and all those folks played. From here, we're on the other side of the Harbor Bridge that's being built, okay? And um, and as you can see, it's, it's devastated. The area is devastated. There's a senior living center that that is really the focal point for everyone who lives on the north side. They offer meals and recreation and stuff during the day. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's still there and was not displaced by the Harbor Bridge. Um, all the other, the parks, T.C. Ayers Park was destroyed by the Harbor Bridge, overtaken by it. And, um, and what you see at the end of this street right here mm -hmm. is the Broadway Wastewater Treatment Plant. Yeah, so we're looking right and ahead, and the old Harbor Bridge is, is right in front of that. Exactly. So that's still in going. And then to my right is the Ebony, and it's right. it's not in any state of, of preservation. I mean, it's right. it's peeling, it's boarded up. It you know it had so much going on, but it wasn't preserved. We've got this is probably a business over here, right. a nicely built brick building, like a really good one. This was definitely like a corner of the street. Right. And then to the left, we see that new Harbor Bridge construction, and I've never seen a piece of equipment like that large right. I don't even know what, what yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it's staying in place that's a it's a miracle to me too yeah um, and all of this area though see there was a grocery store all of this vacant area yeah there's so much vac was, but it wasn't this was this was thriving this was, this was thriving there were there were you know there were 2,000 people yeah 2,000 black folk living here and um and so, as time went on, the Broadway Wastewater Treatment Plant got older and older and started smelling, and that's mm -hmm. probably what you've heard a lot about. So, folks moved out of Washington and Coles and over into the Hillcrest, and we're going to head that way mm -hmm. in a moment. Before we head to Hillcrest, I want Errol and Jim to tell you more of the history of energy production, that's oil and gas, in Corpus Christi. Okay. That's the Inner Harbor, and a little history about that, you know, around here, cotton was king, right? And so it primarily exported uh, agricultural products, and, <clears throat> and then Southern Alkali was the first industry to locate here. He located further up into the channel, but the channel didn't reach them, and so they dredged to the new industry. And that was the very first one. And it was uh, where Sitco East is right now, okay? And uh, it's called Avery Point. When it came in in 1926, they killed the oyster industry in the area. They killed all the oysters. That was a huge thing. There's a big oyster bar downtown, uh, and we'd like to talk about all that. None of those oysters are local. They haven't been for the last almost 100 years now because the Port of Corpus Christi killed them when they the original channel back in 1926. So there's been a willingness in the past to mess with, to destroy the existing environment. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't do that again here in the future. My fear is that, you know, 15, and Errol's talked quite a bit about this as well, that, that you know, kind of the industrialization of the area here, that's going to look uh, very inhospitable to residents. Uh, and that means that people who can get out, can afford to get out, will get out, and those who can't are going to be stuck behind, as you see in Texas City or in Homa, Louisiana as well. A lot of those people are people of color as well. 
um, it's in 62, but around the projects, nothing but refining tanks. There were tanks, storage tanks of all and stuff that was uh, the borderline of the projects. So they, the refinery had all their tanks, storage tanks, right next to the projects, all right? So we were bounded by the refineries and um, uh, up to coast. It's just, um, that's where the projects, not the old projects and new projects. So that's where we were. We were in the new projects. There were the old projects up on the hill, but we were in, we were in the new projects. Do you remember what you thought about all the equipment and refineries when you were younger? Um, I, what I thought about it, I, was, I would tell people that um, they were so close that I didn't have a good throwing arm, but I could throw and hit the tanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That, that's what I thought about, making the sound of the tank. You know, whether or not we had that was something in it or not in it, we could tell oh, by the, the rocks. and the rocks find out you know, if it was or not. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we... we, we Those are huge tanks. Uh, oh, quite yes. A noise. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Pow. Yes, of course, exactly. Wow. Or, you know, <laughs> it depends on whether or not. Empty or full. Exactly, empty or full. Yeah. Exactly. So, so um, the refining business was going bonkers because you had big all men out of Houston. They would own refinery companies down here, you know, so they couldn't, I guess, get around the port of Houston, so they came down to Corpus Christi and, and did their thing. Southwest Refinery, I think, is one of those. Um, a big refine and I forgot the name of the man who owned it, but he was out of Houston, and then he sold it to the uh, uh, Flint Hills. He sold it to the Coke Brothers. All right, so the Coke Brothers own the Flint Hills refinery, That's right, yeah. and Sitco is owned by the Villa Venezuela. What you'll hear in the background is what I heard when I went out to these refineries at night. You've seen a flare on a refinery, right? It's a big metal pole or a smokestack, and there's a fire coming out the top. These refineries will burn off materials rather than release them directly into the air. Oftentimes, though, they do it at night when inspectors aren't around, when most people aren't there poking around. So you'll hear this enormous whoosh, and that is several huge flames coming off of this facility right around where I was standing. Then we have um, the other individuals over here, Valero. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have the big three down in my neighborhood, all right? So Valero, Flint Hills, yeah. and, and Sitco, you know. That's where I was driving around this morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Huge. I mean, that Flint Hills is mm -hmm. enormous. Yes, east and west. Yeah. Sitco, east and west. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. If you, yeah. So if you go up, up, up the river road mm -hmm. and go out, you're not going to have nothing but refineries because they're hugging the river. I drove out to the Flint Hills facility that morning, and this is the soundscape from out there. It's so big. <laughs> it's so big. Where I was recording was almost beautiful. Um, there was a little bay of running water going underneath, and then it, but then it was all just surrounded by a maze of pipes, and you'll hear. 
bunch of steam going up in the air at this point. Um, there's humming coming from all directions. This plant was in full force. They weren't flaring. I think they saved that for night. But there was a lot going on here. Hugging the river, and the river empties into the bay. Mm -hmm. Okay, coming to the ship channel and emptied into the bay. Yeah. 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 You going? Yeah. Some interesting stuff. If you look at the topology of um, the back bay in that area, you'll see um, the wildlife is back there. That you know they. My story is this, and I have come to the conclusion is that they prefer profit over people, all right? They are heavily into profit, and they have give a tinker's damn about people, all right? So they're profit over people, and that's their mindset of all the corporations that are in refinery row is profit over people. As a matter of fact, they're so so adamant about that if they want to take up all the water resources which that is key in the state of texas is water all right and they want to suck up all the water from the people and that's so so sad and and people don't realize what's going on around them and that's where you come in young lady to tell the story <laughs> that's where you come in to make make people aware of what is going on around them. The king has on no clothes. <laughs> they are robbing resources from people that so desperately need it. Water is a huge issue in Corpus Christi right now. It's not that big of a town. It's a little over 300,000 people. But it's these petrochemical plants that require massive amounts of water. This is where the city wants to build its seawater desalination facility. If you look straight ahead, that's where the inner harbor is. They want to draw the intake from there. Of course, they call it seawater, but it's not seawater, it's bay water. In this case, it's inner harbor water. Um, but they want to draw it in there and the facility would be built right here. Again, we're two blocks from where some of those homes were, mm -hmm. and we're three blocks from Reverend Henry Williams' home. And it's gonna be huge, there's gonna be, and so then what they're going to do is they'll process the, the water, and then they'll turn around and, um, and throw it out, right? And back into right. the inner harbor, the brine along with the chemicals, that are in the processing of the desalination plant. When I hear uh, desalination, at first I was like, for drinking water. And I mean, it sounds like, I think public opinion of it is like, oh, desalination, great. We need yes. more drinking water for humans, but that's not the case. They're taking out water for industrial purposes, putting it back into this shallow bay full of more salt and chemicals, which will just kill off the entire right. ecosystem. It's and not water for people. It's because industry is too thirsty. That's right. So they built the Mary Roads to pipeline, and it provided 30 million gallons of water a day, which is enough to support about 180 to uh, 200,000 households, okay, um, on a given day. And so it was 30 million gallons of water a day. 
and it went operational in 2016. And lo and behold, we had a cushion of approximately 25 million gallons over and above our what we normally get in and get out. We had that extra water, and everybody said, "Oh, great! This this is cool." However, Exxon approached the city and said, we need 20 million gallons of water a day, and if we don't get it, we're not going to locate here. And guess what? They gave it. They gave two-thirds of everything that came from the Mary Roads pipeline. What else did they give them when they came in? Oh, 1.1 billion in tax abatements. Uh, from the school districts, the county, the drainage district. Oh my gosh. All of the taxing entities wow. uh, through through what known as Chapter 312 and 313 agreements. And it's over a 10-year period. Now, you can just imagine what $100 million, if that revenue had come in to the, the, the communities uh, on a yearly basis. Think about what could have been done to improve the roads we're driving on, you know, and etc. But they gave two-thirds of it away. The city used to use groundwater, but they closed up all their wells, and nobody will explain why they did that, mm. right? But not that's 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 neither here nor there. That they sounds like, they, yeah, someone's poisoned them. Yeah, they, yeah. they won't talk to us about it. Steel Dynamics comes in and says, hey, we need five. And the city said, okay, you can have it, all right? Because we're thinking of desal now, right? So we'll give you your five million. So now they've given 25 of the 30 away. And guess what happens to them like a couple of months after they did that? The River Authority, which everyone, you know, controls the, the pipeline mm -hmm. from the Colorado River. They said, hey, look. We've got an industry that wants to locate in the, in the Port Lavaca Point Comfort area. We need to recall 10 million gallons of water a day. And unfortunately, they were allowed to do so in the contract, in the supply agreement. So now, we were operating a deficit because right. the city had given away 25, getting 30, and now they were getting getting recalled 10, so that they were minus five in the in the hole. And, and that's uh, minus five million gallons of water a day. A, a day, a day, and so there you go. I mean, in 2017 is when they really started. That's when they spent the first 2.7 million for engineering to to build this facility. Uh, they've now allocated a total of 11 million to permitting and all of that, and we're fighting them. You know, mm -hmm. we're fighting them because we know the water is not for us; it's for industry. And this is where they're locating one of those facilities, and one of four, right? And the city, in the public meeting, someone asked, why are you locating it where you're locating? It says, well, because it's an industrial area, you know, and no one, you know, there's going to be lots of trucks coming in and out, and we didn't want to disturb folks, uh, like if we put it somewhere where in a neighborhood. And the folks in the Hillcrest <laughs> neighborhood that were listening to that just immediately, you know, just jumped on them. 
Yeah. 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 I, I bet See? that the thought is like, oh, well, we already paid to relocate him, so Hillcrest isn't a neighborhood anymore. Hillcrest still is a neighborhood, though. Plenty of people decided not to relocate for various reasons. The pastor of the Brooks AME Worship Center, Adam Carrington, has remained in the community. But there are plans to use some of this area to allow industry to expand beyond its current border. Uh, you're going to see a lot of different vacant lots. You're going to see a lot of um, boarded up homes. Interspersed amongst there are going to be where people are still living that chose to stay, right? Mm -hmm. And But like right where we're at right now, there were homes over here on the left yeah. and there were homes on the right. Um, Why were they demolished in the buyout? Well, because the uh, the port of Corpus Christi doesn't want anybody living here. Oh. They want it to be uh, turned over for um, uh, port, port purposes, okay? Mm -hmm. the te see, technically, the port of Corpus Christi cannot own property unless it is for a port purpose. And so, um, you know, they can't have, they can't, own a residential area, right? Mm -hmm. So they come in and they demolish them after they were purchased. Uh, in May of 2017, there were 700, 750 occupied homes here, and now it's uh, around 300. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe not even quite that much. And right here on our right, at this corner, is where the Reverend Henry Williams lives. It's a very surreal place. Lush green grass grows in huge stretches with houses seemingly scattered randomly throughout. It looks nothing like a city block. There's what was once a really lovely park running through what we'd call the neutral ground in New Orleans, the area between two streets. But it's eerie now. It's filled with unused playground equipment and picnic tables. The skyline directly behind that park, it's completely filled with enormous refineries. It, its construction is so odd. I mean, it, it has this really sort of like fantasy look about it, the way everything is so rounded and all the shapes in it. It's disconcerting. It doesn't look like it makes bad things. I could sort of believe that that's where like gumballs come from. <laughs> Lamont remembered this street as lush. Fruit trees, families living there, enjoying. It was heavily, densely populated, and it was uh, Mecca, orange trees, tangerine trees, Chinese plum trees, peach trees. Um, they had an assortment of flowers, and everybody's yard was kept. It was just a nice place to live. As a kid growing up, um, you could walk there. Like I said, it was a place to, you could raise a family. And that we, my brothers and sisters and I, we lived there. We drove around a few blocks to try and find Lamont's house, but we were too late. Yeah, I think his house is gone. Gone, but not forgotten. Thanks to people like Errol giving these tours of the Hillcrest neighborhood and projects that are designed to memorialize it online and in person. 
the people who lived here, their memories, their sense of community still exists. You just have to go looking for it. We're going to stop the episode here, but in part two, we'll pick up on the legal battle of Hillcrest, as well as start to hear about the amazing case going on with Diane Wilson against Formosa. See you then. The Forgotten Coast podcast is a project of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy in conjunction with the Red, Black, and Green New Deal and Gulf South for a Green New Deal. I'm Caitlin O'Neill. This is my show. I edited it, hosted it, researched it. Thank you so much to the guests this episode, Errol Summerlin, Lamont Taylor, Jim Klein, and Dave Bright. And a huge special thanks to Donna Hoffman. You can find this podcast at theforgottencoastpodcast.com or your favorite podcast app. You can share your Gulf Coast stories on our website. We'd love to hear from you, whether you're located in Corpus or beyond.